Hey, thanks for being here today. Uh, we are kicking off our Christmas series t- today, as I said earlier, and it's, uh, we're calling it An Unexpected Christmas. And uh, I hope this series, as we, we get into it, you will think, well, that's probably not what I thought he would talk about during Christmas. Uh, there, we're going to talk about some stories uh, that we typically don't necessarily, as- let me rephrase it, with that we don't always associate with Christmas. And so it's kind of why it's an unexpected thing. But but one of the things that I think is, is kind of cool that we take for granted, just because it's kind of common knowledge, especially for, for Christians, is the number of accounts that we have of the life of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus, we have more accounts of his life than just about any other historical ancient figure. I mean, like we know more about the life of Jesus than we know about Socrates or Plato. We have more historical documents. And, and in the Bible, we have four of those accounts. We have the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and while they're all similar, they're not identical. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the interesting thing, especially during Christmas, is that two of those accounts don't even mention anything about the birth of Jesus. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus, but, but uh, Mark and Luke, they just start with the ministry of Jesus. They start about 30 years after the birth of Jesus, or uh, Mark and John, excuse me. Luke, he starts with the announcement to, uh, of an angel to Mary's cousin, who would have been John the Baptist's mother, that there was going to be an unexpected pregnancy, that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to be born. And, and then the angel goes to Mary and tells her that, you know, she's going to give birth to the Son of God, which, by the way, answers the question in the song that Mark Lowry wrote a few years ago. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did. An angel told her. That's, that's right there. Read your Bibles. It's right there at the beginning. Um, and so these Gospels, three of the Gospels, um, Mark, Luke, and John, they all start with stories about Jesus, since it's the story of Jesus, but they don't start with the birth of Jesus, or the very beginning. So, Matthew's gospel, though, is really unique because he doesn't start with a story at all. He starts with a genealogy. In fact, if you read the first few verses of the book of Matthew, it's kind of like reading uh, Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is the book that everybody stops at when they make their New Year's resolutions, that I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you read Genesis, and you read Exodus, and it's great, and you're doing really well, and then you get to Leviticus, and you stop, right? That's where everybody stops, and and Matthew, the beginning of Matthew is kind of like that, because the first chapter is just all of these names, and it's like, I don't know who most of these people are. I don't, I've never heard of them. I can't pronounce their names. And so we just kind of either don't read it, skip over it, or we stop. But Matthew's uh, gospel, it, it's really unique because it begins with this, this genealogy. And here's what it says. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And, and Matthew goes on and on. Through, through this list, and he describes this genealogy, and he begins with Abraham, and he goes right up to Jesus. And for most people, that's just not interesting at all. Most of us could care less about this. Most of us have no desire. We really don't know. We really don't care, because we know who we're related to, right? But why does it matter to us who everybody else is related to? And so I think there's a couple of reasons why Matthew uh, does this, why he starts with the genealogy. And, and the first is very specific, because he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. 
Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's about to make the case that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And the very first question that a good Jewish audience would ask before they, before they even read the rest of the story, if, if they're going to want to know, is this Messiah that you're claiming, Jesus, is he related to David? Is he related to King David? Because King David is, is the king above all other kings in the Old Testament. He's our guy. He's, he's the one that God promised that David would have a descendant on the throne. And if there's going to be a physical, literal Messiah, then he has to be related to David. And so Matthew, knowing that he's primarily speaking to a Jewish audience and being Jewish himself, decides, well, let's just answer the very big question first. Who is Jesus ultimately related to? And so he gives this genealogy, but he does something very unusual in this primarily male-dominated genealogy. In fact, it really it should have been all female, and that's not be, me being a misogynist or anything. That's just the, the time, uh, the, the ancient time, was they didn't care about women. They really didn't, and I, I hate to say that for you ladies, but they didn't. And, and so they didn't care who, who the women in the, in the lineage were. They cared about the men. And, and Matthew is trying to make a point that Jesus the man is connected to David the man. But Matthew does something very odd as he's trying to make that point. He throws in the names of four different women. In this genealogy that you read, he throws in a handful of women's names. And, and in fact, he throws these names in there. And, and it's almost as if he pauses to emphasize these, these four women. Now, if you were writing a genealogy to an audience that didn't really care about women in your, in your uh, DNA, in your, in your lineage, you probably wouldn't include them. But he stops to include them and, and to, almost to build some tension around them. It's, it's like he's trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, but he does everything that he can to disrupt the flow of, of that thinking, to cause us to second-guess people in Jesus' genealogy. And here's why I think this is so, so fascinating. Because in ancient times, the only histories that were written were written by hired historians. All right, When you were in school and you studied ancient history, uh, especially before the first century and around the first and second century, most of the histories that we have were written by people who were hired by famous generals, military figures, kings, emperors. And they were, generally speaking, they were hired to, make, to write histories that would make those people look good. I mean, they, they would uh, write about... You know, the, the king's uh, or the military leader's big military conquest. But then they would conveniently leave out all of his military defeats. And so you have kind of these gaps uh, uh, in, in chronology there. Um, they would also leave out people that were connected to him that, that maybe didn't amount to much. They would emphasize the sons of these kings and military leaders who would go on to be great kings and warriors and military leaders. But if they had sons that didn't really amount to much, you didn't mention them. In fact, there are often times where, where there's no mention at all of any of their kids because they just didn't really do anything significant. And so there was no need to mention them. And so, so consequently, there's some gaps in there. And so a lot of times there's some, some uh, contradiction among writers where there's overlap, but there's not a whole lot of overlap because there's just not a lot to go on. But people who wrote histories, they wrote with a, with a specific point in mind. They wrote for somebody to make a family or a person or, or an emperor or a line of emperors. They wrote to make them look as good as they possibly could make them look. And then we get to this ancient document, Matthew, that begins with the genealogy of Jesus. 
And Matthew goes out of his way to make us question some of the people in his genealogy, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, he adds to and emphasizes people that he didn't need to mention at all. For example, again, and this should have just been a male-dominated list. It should have been all men, but he's trying to connect Jesus the man to David the man through the lineage of men, and he gives us these four women. And two of these women he really probably should not have mentioned. Three of these four women aren't even Jewish. And so it's like he's going out of his way to say, oh, and by the way, Jesus, you're this Messiah, this guy that I'm telling you is, is from the lineage of David, he's not even really, his bloodline's not even pure. There, there, it's, it's mixed. There, there's, there's not even uh, 100% Jew, Jewish here, which doesn't help his case at all. Listen to how this goes. He says this, Judah, the father of Perez, or Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so he introduces us to Tamar. Now next week I'm going to tell you the story of Tamar. And there's a good chance that you don't know the story of Tamar. And if you do, great. Uh, come back next week because we're going to talk about it. But let me just tell you this. There are some verses in that story of Tamar that I'm not going to read in church. Okay? It's a very dicey story. And so there's some verses where you're just going to have to, to go home and read your Bible yourself and read them at home. Uh, when I was growing up, we had Bible study on Wednesday nights at my home church. And... Uh, we, we always had a meal, and the adults met in the fellowship hall, and they were getting ready to study the, the book Song of Solomon, which is kind of a dicey book, to, especially to read out loud in, in front of mixed company and in front of uh, just different age groups. And my great-uncle Bob, uh, the meal finished, and he got up to leave, and he was going home. And our preacher said, Bob, where are you going? And he said, I'm leaving. And Greg said, well, we haven't started Bible study yet. And he said, yeah, I know. That's why I'm leaving, because I know what we're reading tonight. And Bob, Greg said, well, Bob, it's part of the Bible. We should read all of the Bible. And he said, yeah, and part of your Bible was meant to be read at home. And he left, because he didn't think that was a, a book of the Bible that should be talked about in public. And so tomorrow is the story of tomorrow. It's got some, some dicey moments in there. So, so here's the thing. Everybody that read this, when, when they're reading the genealogy of Jesus, and they read this name Tamar, all of this Jewish audience, this primarily Jewish audience, who would have known the story of Tamar, they would have all immediately stopped and gone, oh, yeah, you remember Tamar. You remember her story. It doesn't help his cause to put her in here. But, there, but it goes on. Um, he goes on, he says, Perez, the father of Hezron. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That was in another woman. And she's not Jewish either. And Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? If you're, if you're a church person, it's Rahab the, don't fill in the blank. Right? Because when you get to heaven... If you meet Rahab, you're, you're going to go up to her and you're going to go, oh, you're Rahab the, the lady from the Old Testament, right? Because you all, if you, some of you need to read your Bibles some more and so you figure out what her nickname was. But, yeah, that one. Uh, I wasn't going to say that out loud, but, you know. Uh, but, again, there's just no reason to bring her up. And every Jewish reader that reads this is going, oh, Rahab, we know the story of Rahab the prostitute, right? And then you get, go on, you go, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth, there's a good story. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible named Ruth. But Ruth wasn't Jewish. Ruth was from Moab. And I know when I say the, the, uh, talk about the nation of Moab, your mind immediately goes back to the Old Testament book of Amos, right? Right? Yeah, some of you. 
And not all, again, y'all gonna have to y'all gonna have to read your Bibles more, people. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding, kind of. You need to read your Bibles more. But a Jewish person would know that Ruth wasn't Jewish. In fact, the way that Ruth even got into the story is just kind of, a, it's kind of an odd story in itself. It, it turns out great, but it's, it's just kind of unique. And again, you go, Matthew, you're trying to convince this Jewish audience that Jesus is from a divine lineage, that he is, that he is a descendant from, from David. You're trying to connect Jesus to David. So why all of these, these off-ramps? Why all of these distractions? Why mention all of these people that you don't need to mention? He goes on. This is Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. We finally got to where we need to be, right? So why don't we just stop there? Well, Matthew doesn't. He says, David was the father of Solomon, and look how he writes this. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You say, what? Why don't you just say Solomon? And Solomon's son was whoever. And I mean, why don't we just stick with the men, right? But it's like he, he's got to throw in some intrigue. He's got to build some tension here. Solomon, whose mother, and he doesn't even say her name. But everybody knew, didn't they? Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I've been telling you you've got to read your Bibles more. So let's see all you Bible scholars. Who was Solomon's mother? Yeah, Bathsheba, right? You, you, you don't even have to be a church person to know that David and Bathsheba, they were an item. They were a couple. There, there's some intrigue. And Matthew, who, who, he doesn't say, and whose mother was Bathsheba. He doesn't say Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. He makes it worse. Whose mother was another man's wife. And again, the readers that, who would know this Old Testament history, they're like, oh, why'd you have to bring that up? We want to think great things about our King David. We, we don't want to think about, about this, all his flaws, this big, bad, ugly scar, the, the, the thing that David wishes he could erase from his life, this encounter that he has with Bathsheba. We don't want to think about that. Why do you have to bring that up? Whose mother was another man's wife. And maybe you don't remember the story, but David has an affair with one of his best friend's wives, one of his general wives. And, and he has this general set up so that he dies in battle, so that he can steal his wife. It is the worst moment in King David's life. And as Matthew is writing out this genealogy, he hasn't even started the story of Jesus yet. I mean, he hasn't even gotten to Jesus. And it's just like he's going out of his way to create all of this tension around the people related to Jesus. And Solomon's mother, who was related to Uriah, yeah, she was his wife. It's like, just twist the knife a little bit more, why don't you, Matthew? Just, just stick it in there a little more, right? Why not just stick with the men's names? And here's the other thing about this that fascinates me about including these women's names. Is that not only does he include these four women, but there were a lot of women that he could have mentioned that he didn't. I mean, he could have mentioned Sarah, I mean, the, the wife of Abraham, could have mentioned her, but, but he doesn't. He could have mentioned Rebecca. That's an awesome story about Rebecca, but he doesn't mention her. There are some other wonderful women that he could have, that he could have told about that did some incredible things, but he doesn't. He includes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Solomon's mother, who was another man's wife. Now, why did he do that? Well, here's why I think he did that. Because, you see, Matthew had spent three years with Jesus. Matthew heard Jesus teach. Matthew saw the miracles that Jesus did. Matthew stood there and saw Jesus die on a cross. Matthew stood next to an empty tomb. And Matthew knew that all of these shady characters, with all of their baggage and with all of their sin and with all of their embarrassing stories, 
Matthew knew this, that they were the point of the story that he was about to tell. Matthew's about to tell the story of Jesus, and these characters, these people, these, these sinners, they are the point of the story. Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to, to address, but, but he wanted to make it even more clear that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He wanted the world to know that Jesus came from sinners. And that was okay, because that was the point. Matthew knew firsthand that this really was a story about light coming into darkness, that this really was a story about life coming into an environment that was characterized by death, that this was a story about grace penetrating the boundaries and the walls that the law had created. This was really a story about forgiveness entering into a world that only knew condemnation. And the other thing that Matthew knew, and maybe this is what motivated Matthew to include these kind of seedy characters in his genealogy, is that for Matthew, this was also his story. Because you see, the people like Rahab and the people like Judah and, and Tamar and the people like Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, these were his people. These were his kinds of people. These were, were the kinds of men and women that were his friends, that, that, that were his friends on the day that he would say was the most embarrassing moment of his life. The day that Matthew met Jesus for, for the very first time. You know that story that happened in Capernaum in a little town off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is this gigantic lake, but they call it a sea because it's really kind of like an ocean. And there were little port cities all around the coast, and Capernaum is one of those cities. And one day Jesus gets off a boat with his disciples in the city of Capernaum, and they, they get there, and there's a group of people that meet him there. And as so often happened with Jesus, uh, people would bring all their friends who had stuff wrong with them to, to be healed by Jesus. And, and so this group of people, they come come with a friend and they just Jesus gets off the boat and they plop this man right down in front of Jesus and this man happens to be paralyzed and his friends bring him on a mat and and somehow they had heard or they watched or whatever we don't really know but as the boat came closer and closer to the port word got out that Jesus was coming to to their town and so they met him at the dock and we don't know if it happened at the dock or if it happened on the ground or a couple hundred yards away. We don't, we don't know. But we know as soon as Jesus got on shore, these people, they, these, they plopped this guy on a mat down in front of Jesus. And they looked at Jesus. And they looked at their friend. And they looked at Jesus. And they looked at their friend. And they're like, hey, can you do something for my friend? And by this time, as always happened, a crowd gathered around because everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. There was always a crowd. And Jesus looked at their friend who was paralyzed. And he looked at them, he looked at him, and he said something really, really peculiar. He says this to the man who's paralyzed, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now that's not why his friends had brought him, this paralyzed man. That's not why they had brought him to see Jesus. To have his sins forgiven. That was not what they were looking for. That's not what he was specifically looking for. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And then I think Jesus probably got ready to just turn around and leave. Well, the religious leaders uh, of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, all those people, they followed Jesus around everywhere, and they're there as well. And the reason that they followed Jesus around everywhere was they're trying to figure out if Jesus is who he really claims to be. Because on the one hand, he, he does some great things, but then he says some odd things. Uh, on the one hand, he obeys the law, but then he breaks the law. On the one hand, he, he does miracles, but then he says stuff like this, that your sins are forgiven. It's like, who is this man? What's going on with him? And these Pharisees, these scribes, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't just tell this guy that your sins are forgiven. 
Only God can forgive sins. And I think that's where Jesus is kind of going, yeah, okay. Keep going with this. You're on the right track, right? And Jesus, I think, says, hey, by the way, have I not told you that, that I have been given the authority to forgive sins? And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you don't have the authority. That only belongs to God. And if you're saying that, that means you're equating yourself with God. That's blasphemy. And Jesus doubles down on this. He says, I have the authority to forgive sins. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, there's this drama uh, around Jesus claiming to be to, to have this power that only God has. I mean, is he equating himself with God? Is he telling these people that he is in fact God? By the way, he was telling them that. And before they can, the religious leaders, before they can create any more drama about what Jesus has said, Jesus looks at the young man on the mat and he says, oh, by the way, get up, pick up your mat, roll it up and take it home. And the man who's paralyzed, who's been carried there by his friends and has been plopped down at the feet of Jesus by his friends, gets up, suddenly, miraculously healed, picks up his mat and goes home. The people that are standing there are like, this guy says he can forgive sins, and I don't know if he can do that, but he just, with words, told a man that we know is paralyzed to get up and go home, and the man got up, and he went home. Like something, something powerful has happened here. Now, we don't know if Matthew saw that. We don't know if Matthew was in the vicinity of that. We don't know if Matthew heard about that or experienced that moment. But what we do know is this, is that Matthew made sure to write in his account of Jesus' life. He made sure to mention that, this, that the moment that he meets Jesus is, precise, is just directly after this. After Jesus has this encounter with this paralyzed man, it happens right before Jesus and Matthew meet for the first time. Because moments later, Matthew would be eyeball to eyeball with the Savior of the world for the very first time. And here's how it happened. Matthew writes his own story. He says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And I really do think that when Matthew went to parties and they played, you know, hey, what's your most embarrassing moment uh, game? I think this is the moment that he tells. Hey, this is my most embarrassing moment, the, the day that, that I met Jesus for the first time. And let me tell you why it's my most embarrassing moment, because you're not going to b- believe it. Because when I first met Jesus, he'd just gotten off this boat, he'd just gotten off the dock. There's this controversy about whether he can forgive sins or not. He, he heals this paralyzed man, and then he walks through this crowd, and there he sees me, and I am sitting at a tax collector's booth. And here's why that's so embarrassing. Because the Romans... They sold the privilege of selling taxes to Roman citizens. You could go to Rome and you could buy the opportunity to go to Palestine and Judea and collect taxes. And the way it worked was this, was you went down and you were given the responsibility of collecting a certain number of taxes. And then you could add a surcharge onto that and whatever you collected after that, you got to keep the margin. As long as you gave Rome what Rome wanted, as long as you gave to Caesar what belonged to Caesar, you got to keep the rest. And so tax collectors were very wealthy people because they overtaxed and then they got to keep the margin as long as Rome was happy. And in this system, there were many, many taxes. I mean, there were income taxes, there were poll taxes, there were bridge taxes and gate taxes and taxes on fruit and taxes on meat and taxes at ports. Everywhere you went, there was a tax. And every time Rome needed more money, they would just raise the taxes in all the areas of the world that they controlled. And so they sold this opportunity to raise taxes for five years. You bought a five-year privilege to do this. Now, the problem was this. If you're a Roman citizen and you go to Judea or to Palestine and and you're collecting taxes and you raise taxes, how popular of a person are you? 
Yeah, not very. You're not at all. In fact, people, people egg your houses. They steal your donkey. They, they create all kinds of havoc for you. You don't have any kind of friends no, because nobody likes the tax collector, right? And so the Romans, they, they got smart about this and they figured out, they figured out a, a new system. And they, requ- they recruited Jewish people to raise taxes on the Jewish people. Now, if you were a Jewish person and you bought the privilege to, to be a tax collector, this was about the worst thing you could do as a Jewish person. This was betraying your nation. This was betraying your God. You were a total traitor and an enemy of the state. You were an outcast. And so any Jewish man that, that bought the opportunity to collect taxes from the Jews was considered the lowest of the lows. In fact, you've, you've heard me say this before. There, there were two categories in Scripture that we read about all the time. There were the tax collectors and the sinners. Right? You had the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors were so bad, they were so despised, they, they, were, they were lower on the totem pole than all of the other sinners. They weren't even lumped in the same category. They had their own category, tax collectors and sinners. And that's who Matthew was. Matthew was an embarrassment to his family. He was ostracized from religious life. He wasn't allowed in the temple or in the synagogue. He would never be ceremonially clean enough to go in. His only other friends were, were tax collectors and sinners. And there he sits at a tax collecting booth when Jesus walks up. The picture of righteousness, holiness personified, God in the flesh. And he makes eye contact with Matthew. And Matthew's sitting there collecting taxes from other Jewish people. I'm telling you, there is no telling what went through his mind or washed over him as he saw for the very first time the Son of God walking in his direction, followed by his disciples, who, by the way, hated tax collectors. And as they approached Matthew, and maybe they had to pay a poll tax because they're at, they're at a port city, right? And as they approached uh, Matthew, you know what Peter and Andrew and James and John, all the other guys, they're, they're already trying to figure out what they're going to do to Matthew as they walk by him. You know, do they spit on him? Do they just, do they just say something hateful to him? Do they, do they just whisper about him? What are they going to do? Because Matthew's a tax collector. He's not even a sinner. He's a tax collector. And Jesus says this to Matthew. He says, follow me. Follow me. That's what he told Matthew. I think this is probably the worst day in the life of Peter up until the crucifixion, honestly. Because, you know, Peter, this outspoken disciple who, who's a patriot, who's, who's, who's zealot for his country and for, for all things Jewish. Peter's like, what? Jesus, do you know who that is? You're telling that tax collector to follow you? No, Jesus, come on, Jesus. You, you, you can't be serious, right? And Jesus says, hey, Matthew. Come follow me. And Peter's like, Jesus, people already think we're kind of outcasts. We're kind of freaks for following you. And if we're going to start hanging out with tax collectors, that's going to make it even worse for us, Jesus. Like, Jesus, you got to rethink this. And Jesus says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And Matthew's like, hey, well, where are we going to go? Jesus says, I got an idea. Let's go to your house. Can you imagine what Peter thought then? He says, hey, let's go to your house. Peter's like, no, no, Jesus. Jesus, like, that, that's too much. Jesus, that's too much. If, if we go to his house, we won't be able to go into the temple for months. Like, we, we can't do this. Jesus, let's go to his house. And here's what we're going to do. Matthew, invite your friends. Invite your other tax collectors and sinner friends. And we're going to have a party at your house tonight. We're going to have dinner at your house. And so the disciples, I think reluctantly, they followed Jesus and Matthew to Matthew's house 
And they start having dinner with Matthew and, and his friends. And Matthew's got, who's Matthew's friends? They're, they're the tax collectors and the other sinners. And, and Matthew's, he probably throws a really great party because he's got lots of money. And he's got friends that are not the, you know, maybe the, the greatest of character people. So he's probably throwing a great party. And, and Jesus and all of his disciples are there. And the religious people, they gather on the, in, on the outside of Matthew's home because they wouldn't dare touch the property. I mean, you, you can't get too close to the tax collectors and sinners because you'll catch some kind of tax collector cooties, right? And just float it in the air and you just couldn't get close enough to them. And so they're outside watching all of this. They're watching Matthew and Jesus have dinner together. And they, the religious they kind of motion to one of Jesus' disciples, hey, you need to come outside, we got some questions about this. And so James or John or somebody goes outside and they begin to talk with the religious leaders and, and one of them says, hey, look, we don't understand what your master is doing. We don't understand your rabbi. On the one hand, he talks about the righteousness of God and the goodness of God and he seems to want to uphold the law and, and yet now he's in there getting tax collector cooties. We don't understand that. I mean, he's a mystery to us. It's a paradox. It's a contradiction. What is going on with him? And Jesus, he either overhears what's happening or just he's Jesus so he just knows what's being said right and he goes out and he says this he says on hearing this out here in the conversation between the religious leaders Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick at which point Matthew and his tax collecting friends they could have been offended right I mean that could be a little bit offensive but they weren't. Because you know what people who are far from God know? They know that they are far from God. Didn't you know that about you? I mean, maybe, don't you know that about you now, maybe? I mean, yeah, you might be offended if I were to judge you and to say that you were, you were far from God, that you're a sinner. If I were to judge you and to say that, it, it could be offensive to you. Uh, and you would probably tell me where I could take my religion and where I could put it and all that kind of stuff. But, but at the end of our conversation, you would know, right? You, you would know. And Matthew knew. He knew he was far from God. Look, I have never thought of myself as sick, but I know what Jesus is. This is a figure of speech, and, and if it comes to being a righteous person, then yes, I'm sick. And so Jesus says, but go. He, he says to these religious people, I, I want you to go, and I want you to learn what this means. And he quotes from an Old Testament story, and it's an awesome story. I'm not going to tell it to you today, but, but these religious people, they knew exactly what the context of this statement was. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to learn what this means. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I, speaking of God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he speaks for himself, and he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In, a, in other words, Jesus, why did you come? Well, I came, I didn't come to call the righteous people. I didn't come to call the good people. I've come to call sinners. And that wasn't offensive to Matthew and his friends because guess what? They knew they were sinners. And you see, as Matthew considered and he thought about his own story, he realized the story that he's about to tell being one of the writers of the Gospels. He's about to tell the story of Jesus. He knew that to include sinners in the genealogy of Jesus, it wasn't an aberration. It wasn't an exception. It was the point. Because he had seen Jesus live out on mission. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. I have come not for those who, who are healthy, who don't need a doctor, but I have come for the sick. And Matthew understood that maybe better than any of the other gospel writers. 
He understood the story of Jesus, the story specifically of, of Christmas, the story that, about God drawing near to those who had drawn away. And God drawing near to those who had been drawn away. And God leaning in toward those who had, who had leaned away from God. And God leaning in toward those who, who, because of things they had no control over, because of family situations or a lack of knowledge or whatever it might be, had found themselves leaning away from God. The story of Christmas is all about God leaning in for those people. And Matthew understood and he needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy because not only were those his people, they reflected why Jesus came in the first place. And at the end of three years, here's what Matthew had discovered. He discovered that when Jesus came, he changed the rules in terms of what it meant to approach God. Because the reason Matthew had drawn away from God and the reason that so many of his friends had drawn away from God is because the thinking is, is a whole lot like the thinking of now. That in order to approach God, I, I, I approach God based on the platform of what I have done or what I have not done. The only reason that God will take me seriously is because, of, of, because I've done good things and I've done my best to avoid the big bad things. And Matthew knew that if that was the platform by which you approach God, that he had no approach to God. That he would, he would be pushed out of religious life in connection with God forever. But what Matthew discovered after watching Jesus for three years, after standing by the cross, after standing next to an empty tomb, what Matthew discovered was that the rules had changed. And that from now on, that he, a tax collector, a sinner, a man who had failed in every way and had broken every law, now had the opportunity to approach God. Not on the basis of what he had done, but on the basis of what Jesus had done for him. The rules had changed. And, and, and that the sinners and the genealogy, they were the point because God had not come for those who felt like they could stand in light of their own righteousness. God had come for those who needed a different standard altogether. Not for those who had done so well, but for those who had done so poorly that they needed a gift. The, the gift of righteousness. The gift based on what God, through Jesus, had done on our behalf. That's the message in the story that he was about to tell. The story of God drawing near to those who had drawn away. And I don't know about you, but I think that's really good news. Don't you know that as Matthew wrote the genealogy, he must have laughed. I think he smiled every time he got to one of those seedy characters. He thought, yeah, I'm going to throw in this name. I, and, and, and all the Jewish people, they're going to hate this when I put in their name. They're, they're going to go, oh, why is he telling that story? Why is he bringing that name up? And... and and I just think that he thought, you know, they need to know that this is the point of the story. They need to know that these people are the point of the story. That's why he included the names of, of people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Look, chances are you don't know the story of Judah and Tamar. Perhaps there's some details of other stories that you've missed but over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at those stories. We're going to tell those stories, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see how Christ uh, makes a difference in those stories. And I, and I get, like, you think, well, why would we tell those stories at Christmas time? Like, those things don't have anything to do with Christmas. But here's, here's why we're going to focus on those things. Because when an angel announced the birth of Jesus, the angel announced the birth of Jesus as the Savior of the world, a Savior from sin. That's the point of Christmas, that God sent a Savior. And so this genealogy is the perfect launch into a Christmas story because it highlights the world's need for a Savior. And so here's my goal for us over the next couple of weeks. 
is it for everyone? Whether you're Christian or not, whether you were raised in the church or you weren't, whether you, you were raised with a specific church background or you just you were raised in church and you don't know what your church background was, but you just went to church where all the cute girls were in youth group or all the cute boys were in youth group, but that's why you went. doesn't matter. This is for all of us, okay? My goal for us is that, that if you're still a person who approaches God in your mind or in your prayers or in your worldview or your perspective, if you're still approaching God in any way, based on what you have done and what you have not done, my goal is for the next few weeks that you would abandon that thought completely. That you would abandon that mindset completely because listen to me on this, no matter how good you are and no matter how consistent you have been in attending church or giving or or whatever it is that makes you think that you're approachable and righteous before God, listen to me, it's not good enough. It's not. It's not good enough and I know that sounds harsh and I don't mean it to be harsh, I'm just being honest with you and truthful with you it's not good enough and so my goal for you would be that you would abandon that approach to God altogether at the same time if you're a person who says you know my understanding is if I'm going to have a relationship with God then I'm going to approach God then I've got to come on the basis of what I've done and what I haven't done and Adam just to be honest there's there's a lot of I haven't done there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of things that I'm incredibly ashamed of. There are a lot of things that are a part of my family background that, that you know, I didn't have any control over, but I'm still very ashamed of them, I, and I don't, I don't want anybody to know about them. I just, there's a lot of baggage when it comes to me and, and approaching God. There's just too much belief. There's too much immorality. Because I know if I'm going to approach God that somehow I've got to come on the merit of my deeds and my consistency. My goal for you, if you feel like you can't step up on the platform, is this that you would give up trying, that you would give up trying, that you would abandon that entire way of thinking as well. That, and, and look, the, I'll tell you, the people that I know that struggle with this the most are oftentimes very religious people. They're very religious people, and you've leaned far from God in spite of the fact that He's leaned in your direction. And, you, and you've done that because you can't find it within yourselves to find the religious, the righteous, the consistent momentum that you need to approach God. But look, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus is a story is is this story of being taken of of that way of thinking being taken away from all of us once and for all for everybody for those who think they're righteous who who are too righteous and for those of us who who know we're not enough and look my goal for us in these next couple of weeks is that we would come to a place where we could with a clear conscience say God in my prayers in my thinking in my perspective in my worldview I I am coming to you purely one hundred percent based on the fact that that through Jesus you have done something for me. That you, Jesus, have the authority to declare me forgiven from all sin. That I accept that. And I'm not going to run my thoughts and I'm not going to run, my, my, run you through my, my grid of personal righteousness and unrighteousness. I, de- I declare irrelevant because, Jesus, what you have done for me makes all the difference in the world. What you have done for me satisfies whether I'm righteous or unrighteous. Jesus, you have determined my righteousness. You came to be exactly what Matthew and Luke presented you to be. The Savior, the Forgiver, the gift of righteousness to the world. And look, that's a more difficult transfer than you might think. It's a difficult transfer to make because at first we tend to believe that we're more righteous, more religious than we are. And it's, it's difficult to abandon that way of thinking. And I'll just tell you, perhaps that's why it wasn't the tax collectors or the sinners or even really the Romans that crucified Jesus. It was the men and women that believed somehow that they had an approach to God that could be justified based on their goodness. 
It was the group that never understood this verse that I have come to call the, that I have not come to call the self-righteous, that I have come to call sinners. I've not come to call those that think that they have to earn their way through goodness and consistency. I've come for those who recognize and look my hands up, I'm one of them. That, that I've come for those who recognize that no amount of good works will ever justify a man or a woman that, to be able to stand before God. That the ability to approach God relationally is a gift. It is a gift that we cannot earn and it has nothing to do with how good I am or how bad I am, but it has everything to do with how good Jesus is. And so as Matthew wrote this genealogy, how could he resist? How could he resist the temptation to include sinners and failures in his list? Because it was failures and sinners that are the point of the Christmas story. So my prayer for us over the next couple of weeks as we wrestle this to the ground, as we approach Christmas itself, that we would approach it as a group of people who have been liberated from this false sense of righteousness and hopeless sense of unrighteousness. And that we would be a group of people who every day of our lives, that we would live out our faith and we would live it out in such a way that we can say, I can approach my Father in heaven, not because of how good I am, but because of how good He has been to me. Because of what God has done through Jesus for me. That's the story of Christmas. Let's pray.